0: Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Alright, so this morning we're going to be in John chapter 3. This will be a fairly familiar passage for a lot of you. John chapter 3, Jesus and his conversation with Nicodemus. Um, As we go through this Christmas series, we're talking about things that God has accomplished for us by His Son, that He's loved us, He's pursued us, and this week I was going to talk about being redeemed by Him, but last week we really covered a lot of that in the passage we looked at, so I'm going to focus on being regenerated, um, given new life, being born again by God's Son, and then next week, Brendan will teach from... Uh, 2 Corinthians, and he's going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk about how we become a new creation. Brendan's going to talk about how to live as a new creation, okay? And so the focus this morning will be on this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus and what does it mean to be born again and how does God do that? Um, as we As we look at this, we're metaphor reigns where mystery resides. And so some of the things we're going to talk about in this passage would have been kind of mysteries to the Jewish faith. And so what Jesus is going to do to describe this mystery is he's going to use metaphors. Um, He uses several metaphors all in one conversation. When I teach, I try and only use one, maybe two metaphors, um, because when people start using multiple metaphors, sometimes they get mixed. Um, My mom is actually the queen of mixed metaphors over there. Right? The cookie doesn't fall far from the oven or something like that. Um, there's a handful of other ones. The, the one I like is it's not rocket surgery. Um, I, think that's, I think that's a good mixed metaphor. Um, but so I'm, I'm going to do my best not to mix these metaphors, but but Jesus uses several metaphors. The other thing I'll share with you about the Gospel of John, and it's it's a place where we, we encourage a lot of new believers to go there, um, or people that are trying to understand who God is, to go to the Gospel of John. And that's because the Gospel of John, the, the saying that they have is, it's, it's shallow enough for an infant to wade in, and it's deep enough to sail a ship. Um, there's there's something for everyone in the Gospel of John, no matter where you're at in your walk. God's... God is going to speak to you if you have ears to hear. Um, And so let me pray and we'll we'll look at this this passage. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give each of us ears to hear, uh, that you enlighten us and quicken our spirits so that we could understand your ways, so that we could understand who you are, so that we could know what it is to be in need to not have life and to be given life. God give us give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. Help us understand the deep spiritual truths that you have for each and every one of us. And then God lead us to walk in those. We thank you that your son Jesus Christ has come to this earth, that he lived a sinless life, that he was born a human, uh, both divine and human, that he was born to understand what it is to be human, to to be the perfect man. The man the human that none of us could be. And then exchange his perfection for our corruption, becoming sin for us, so that we could be freed from those consequences and given new life. So it's in his name that we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little outline of the passage we're going to look at here. John is or excuse me, Jesus is interacting again with Nicodemus, and what we're gonna see is we we can't see or perceive uh, that the natural man, that the natural human does not have the ability to understand the things of God, that we actually need to, by God, be enlightened and have our spirit come to, to life, that we're spiritually dead and that we cannot perceive the things of God by ourselves. Um, If you were to approach the Scripture and not include the Holy Spirit, you're probably not going to get the right conclusions from it. The Holy Spirit has to be involved in us having our eyes open so that we can understand the things of God. We fail to recognize God. We fail to see how God is working. We fail to see God in our own lives. Nicodemus is going to look the Messiah in the eye and not understand who he is. My, My suggestion is we would do the same. Um, but God has revealed himself, and he's done so to the greatest degree. He's done so with mercy, grace, and love. And then we're, we're, we're sort of issued this challenge at the end by Jesus, and it's that we become who we believe. If you believe in secular humanism, you will become the, the most that a human could be, um, which isn't a lot if you believe who Jesus is, you will become a partaker of the divine nature. Everlasting life will be given to you. We become who we believe, and then we believe who we love. Ultimately, that's what the the gospel is about. It's about not so much, there's an intellectual aspect to it, and you have to believe, but ultimately, you believe who you love. And if you know that God has loved you, first and that he's done everything necessary to save you, then the right response is to love him in return. And so that's kind of what we'll be looking at. So he says here, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So the first thing we learn about Nicodemus is that he's a ruler of the Jews. The Sanhedrin had 70 some members and Nicodemus is one of them. He's one of the elite ruling members of the Jewish class within Jerusalem during his time. He's going to be highly educated. He's going to be wealthy. Um, And as we see here, he's going to be somebody that that the nation looked to for teaching, okay? A ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night. Why did he go at night? Probably because he didn't want people to know that he was going to see Jesus. Um, There's a few other reasons, but probably that's why. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, which just means teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And so we see that Nicodemus is approaching Jesus as though they were roughly on the same level. Rabbi, teacher, you're a rabbi and a teacher. I'm a rabbi and a teacher. And Nicodemus is probably approaching him with some degree of authority. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a ruler of the Jewish people. And he's approaching Jesus and he's saying, you're teaching in our area. We're the spiritual authority here. What are you up to? We want to know, know who you are and what you're doing. The signs that you're doing, the miracles that you're performing, they point me to believe that you're, you're from God. You kind of look like a prophet to me. Uh, You remind me maybe of Elijah or Elisha. Um, And so what are you up to? Jesus replies to him, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a weird answer, isn't it? (laughs) Nicodemus says, you look like a teacher. You look like you're from God. You're performing these signs. Uh, Tell me who you are. And Jesus says, you won't be able to understand. Unless you're born again, you won't be able to understand the kingdom of God. It's beyond your comprehension. And so Nicodemus says, "How can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born?" Now, I don't think Nicodemus is as obtuse as what he says here. Um, he's not. He's not suggesting that Jesus is say go back into your mother's womb, but he is saying, "What are you talking about?" And so what Nicodemus does is he, he asks this short-sighted, ill-informed question. Jesus is just a rabbi or a teacher from God. He's uh, performing these signs. That's what it points to. And maybe he looks like a prophet, but, but not necessarily the Messiah. Um, and we ask these kind of questions too, these short-sighted, ill-informed questions. We go to God and we ask him, que- we ask him questions that, that aren't really the right question. And the cool thing is that he will redirect us, and that's what Jesus does. He gives a major redirection. You aren't seeing what's going on here. You're blind to the kingdom of God and who Jesus is. But Nicodemus, he's, he's not tracking yet at this point. He, he can't see or perceive, and neither can we, unless God does something, so God enlightens. He says, Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and, of the, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whoever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whoever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And so what Jesus is doing here is he's got a few Old Testament references. Primarily what Nicodemus probably would have thought of was Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. And in that passage, Ezekiel is describing the new covenant that God is going to make with the nation. And he tells them that he's going to wash them with water and put a new spirit within them. And so Jesus says that you have to be washed with, born of water and, and of the spirit. And he's, he's telling him that you need to be a part of this new agreement with God, that the new covenant is about to take place. And and so it's a messianic statement in and of itself that Jesus is going to bring about the new covenant. The other thing that it would have done for Nicodemus is Gentile proselytes they had to go through a process of becoming part of the Jewish faith. And they had to go through a few things, but the la- one of the last things they went through was a, a ritual baptism, a washing with water. And so this was mildly insulting to Nicodemus. He shows up, ruler of the Jews, member of the Sanhedrin, Who's this guy teaching in our area? Jesus says you don't know the first thing about it. And by the way, you know how Jewish people or how how Gentile people have to be washed before they can enter the kingdom. So do you. He's saying you're calling me as dirty as a Gentile. Um, This is this would have Nicodemus would have been like, come again. I beg your pardon. And then he goes on to a word play and he talks about the wind and and the spirit and how the spirit moves. Wind and spirit are both are the same word in Greek uh, and Hebrew. In, In Greek, the word is pneuma and it means both wind and spirit. And so he's making a play on words here. His point here is that no one controls the action of the Holy Spirit. You can respond to him, but you can't tell him what to do. Um, it is not up to us to go to God in the person of the Holy Spirit and say, I think you should do this, that, and the other thing in my life. And by the way, I perform these religious rituals, and so you owe me this, that, and the other thing. And, and, and so we don't get to control the Holy Spirit. The other thing here is that the Spirit of God, he's, he's moving, and, and he's moving as God sees fit. He's moving in your life as he sees fit. He's challenging you. He's, he's awakening you. He's causing you to understand the sin in your life. He's causing you to see your need. He's telling you that you have nothing by yourself and that the only way that you can bear fruit is if you abide in Christ. He's, he's telling us these things. We don't go to him and say, well, I think we have a new definition for morality, God. And so if you'd stop convicting me of this sin, I'd appreciate that he causes the new birth, he gives new life. The regeneration is from him. And that phrase born again would actually probably be better translated born from above. Um, In John chapter 8, Jesus has a an interaction with the Pharisees. And we give the Pharisees a hard time because they're very stringent with their rules and regulations. But honestly, the Pharisees were the best that that Israel had to offer. They took the Bible seriously. They believed in its inspiration. They taught it. They did their best to follow it. The problem was is they thought it was about their self-effort. And so then they impressed these rules on other people. The other thing that they did with the Bible, though they believed it, is they leveraged it to control people instead of love people. But Nicodemus, he's one of these Jewish leaders. And Jesus, like I said, in John chapter 8, has an interaction with them. And he tells them that I am from above, you are from below. And so this born from above, he's saying, I am from above, you are from below. Your flesh, I'm, I'm from the Spirit. He, we were conceived by a, by a human father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You are from below, I am from above. And then he tells him that you are of your father, and he says, You are of your father the devil, and he's the father of lies. And so Jesus pushed back against the religious leaders of the time. That's what they killed him for eventually. But Nicodemus, he's he's still not tracking, and he's probably at this point mildly insulted. He needs to be reborn and washed. But that's what God is doing. Jesus is doing this for Nicodemus. And if you know the story of Nicodemus, he becomes one of the two people within the Sanhedrin who defend Jesus. There's a point where they're going after Jesus and Nicodemus actually defends him and says, if he's from God, him and, him and uh, um, the high priest of the time, later on, they, they kind of, or the great teacher of the time, Gamaliel, they, they defend him. That if he's from God, you're not going to be able to do much about this and we should wait and see. Um... And he was also one of the two people, along with Joseph of Arimathea, that, that honored him in burial. And so it looks like Nicodemus catches on. But in this moment, he needs this rebirth. He's mildly insulted. But God, Jesus, is enlightening and, and quickening him. And by the way, if if you are in Nicodemus's shoes and you think, well, I have an excellent religious track record, and uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I keep the Ten Commandments as best as I can. Or I, um, I treat people well. I'm a good person. Um, no, you're not. Um, you, are in need, you are in need of rebirth just like Nicodemus. He was the best they had to offer, and, and he didn't measure up. So maybe God will enlighten and quicken you this morning but we fail to recognize him. Uh, he says, you are a teacher of Israel, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, you are a teacher, and it's interesting here, it says a in our translations, there's a, there's a definite article in the Greek, it's actually, you are the uh, teacher of Israel. In other words, this is the guy that they look to for, for answers. Um, and don't know these things, Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. The other thing that's being drawn out here, when, uh, when, jo- when Nicodemus first talks to, to Jesus, he says, we know that you are a rabbi. And so there's, there's two groups going on here. There's a group of the religious leaders that they, rec- they look at Jesus and they go, some of us some of us think you're something. Um, others want you out of the picture. And then Jesus, he says, but our testimony, and he's speaking both from the perspective of of the Trinity, but also of his followers. But he says, if we speak to you and testify what you've seen, do you not accept our testimony? If I've told you about earthly things, in other words, the metaphors that he just used, water, wind, rebirth. If I teach you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? If you can't grasp what I'm saying through the metaphor, there's no way you're going to get it if I tell you directly. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is an interesting statement that he makes. He's basically saying he is from above. You need to be born from above. I have descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is a messianic title, one of Jesus' favorites for himself, taken from the book of Daniel. but the, the claim here, and it's interesting, the rabbinical writings of the time, the, the writings that the rabbis were putting together, they were actually asking God for a pronouncement, a, an oracle, a, a prophet. Because they were in a period of silence. Between Jesus and the end of the Old Testament, there's, there's three or four hundred years there. And God does some things with, with the Maccabees and, and, the, and, the, and the Greeks at that point in time. But there's no prophet. There's no word. There's nothing coming from God. It's a period of silence. And so the rabbis were actually asking God, will you, will you give us something? And Jesus is saying, I'm here to give you what you've been asking for. A revelation from God. But Nicodemus isn't seeing it. And so, Nicodemus, what he does is he looks the Messiah in the eye and he doesn't get it. As I said, he's the very best that Israel has to offer and he doesn't see or perceive what God is doing. He's the teacher of Israel. And at this point in time, they were really trying to follow the 613 laws from the Old Testament 248 that are do's, 365 that are don'ts. And so, it's interesting. What he tells Nicodemus essentially is you're the teacher, you're supposed to have the most knowledge, and you don't get it, you're the law keeper. You know all the rules, you probably try to perform them the very best that you can, and you don't get it. So apparently it's not about how much we know, and it's not how well we perform. It's not about what we can do, it's about God moving in our lives. And so you could keep those as best as you possibly, humanly could, and not ascertain who Jesus is or what he's doing. And so this is a strong message to the legalist. You think you've come up with the right rules And you've got all the right formulas to to make God do things in your life. No. That's not what it's about. He's going to tell us what it's about in a minute, but it's not that. It's not your head knowledge, and it's not how well you perform. Those things don't cause regeneration. And Jesus says here that he is the Messiah. I mean, he's the son of man that descended from heaven. I mean, he couldn't be clearer that he is God in flesh. Um, A lot of people read the Gospels and they're looking for explicit claims where Jesus said that he was God. And they're there. But... The claim is that, that, that there aren't very many explicit claims where Jesus said that he was God, and so uh, I think it's probably more of something that, that developed over time, that, that his followers turned him into a deity because he didn't claim it. Well, if you know how to read, there are so many implicit claims of deity that, that your statement makes no sense. If you actually read the Gospels, the implicit claims are all over the place. Here's one of them, the Son of Man who descended from heaven. It's fairly hard to miss, he's claiming to be God. And so, if metaphors don't work, how will I explain the deeper things of God to you? He's explaining his origin, or lack thereof. Jesus was born, he was begotten of God, but he is eternal. He is, he is the eternal God who is begotten of God and took on human flesh. And as I said a little bit ago, it wasn't by human will or of a, of a human father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which made him sinless, which made him the second person to walk the planet sinless. The first one, Adam, the first two, Adam and Eve gave away their sinlessness and rebelled against God. Jesus maintained his sinlessness all the way to the cross until he became sin for us. And that's what makes his sacrifice possible of cleansing us. But Nicodemus, he's, he's not understanding. But Jesus is letting him know that, he's the that the long-awaited Messiah is talking to him. But we fail to recognize God. Um, and I think most of the time... Our failure to recognize God is our pride. We think we know better. We think that we have progressed to the point where we've no need of God or religion. And if you're lucky, he won't humble you too much. But if you're prideful... God is opposed to the proud gives grace to the humble. And so you listen to Jesus' words and recognize who he is. We fail to recognize who God is, but he has revealed himself. Verse 14, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake, the bronze snake, in Numbers chapter 21, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Maybe a story you know, maybe not. Numbers chapter 21. The Jewish people have gone through the period of the Exodus. They're in the wilderness. They're longing to go into the promised land. And they're complaining about how God is supplying for them. Um, They call what God gives them the the food that's given to them every day, manna. In Hebrew, it means what is it? Um, So the next time your wife makes something and you call it manna, just, honey, it's not a compliment. (laughs) what is it, right? They're saying, God, what, what is this? What have you put in front of us? Um, but they're complaining, and they're grumbling. And uh, so God sends in these, these, they call them fiery serpents, and they called them fiery because the snake bite would have burned. And people are losing their lives to these snake bites. And so they they immediately go, well not immediately, but they pretty quickly within the story, they say, this is probably God telling us that our grumbling is no good. Um, And so they say, Moses, do something for us. Moses goes to God and God tells Moses, make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. And anyone who looks at the bronze serpent will be healed. And so he puts the bronze serpent on the pole, they look at it and they're healed. And Jesus says that that this is what's going to happen with the Son of Man. Just as the snake was lifted up, the Son of Man will be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So he says, the the metaphors that I've used didn't work. Let's try an Old Testament passage. And it's an unexplained Old Testament passage. Uh, There is no explanation for Numbers 21 in the Old Testament. There's no, nobody talks about what God was doing. And so Jesus says, I will explain it to you, Nicodemus. Moses lifted up the bronze snake as a a symbol of the forgiveness of sin and disobedience. It was a symbol of forgiveness, but it also represented the, the restoration of all who trust in God's remedy. And what's crazy his crucifixion was invented by the Persians about 200 years before Jesus. The story of the serpent in the wilderness is about 1,400 years before Jesus. There's no reference for Moses for, for crucifixion. So what's he talking about with, "Why is this serpent going up on a pole?" Jesus says, Essentially, because in the fullness of time, God's plan was for the Messiah to come and be crucified. And that unexplained story from the Old Testament points forward to things that you couldn't even comprehend. It's God's plan of salvation. It points to the crucifixion as the ultimate means of forgiveness. It makes old things new with the gift of eternal life. And this this verb here may have is a present active verb. And so eternal life is not something that you wait for when you die. I think one of the common views of Christianity is that you you confess, you accept, you repent, you receive the Lord as your Savior, and then you go on living your life the way that you did before. And he's, no, it's an active enjoyment of living with God and for his purposes right now. That's eternal life. You weren't saved to keep being who you were you were saved to be regenerated and given new life and then to live in an active enjoyment with God. with God. You could not do that, by the way. I think a lot of Christians don't do that. A lot of Christians don't live for their relationship with God. God is going to save them and he's, they're thankful for the fire insurance, but but they, they're, they're not really living a different life. And so that, that might be something to assess. God, am I living for an active enjoyment with you. Jesus says in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and the Son whom he sent. But the other part of our lives is that will you live for his purposes? Um, you could say, I, 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 you know, I talk to God, and I, and I pray, and I read his Bible, um, and, you know, I'm doing those things, um, but, but these, this is not really being changed in my life. I still think my purpose has a lot to do with receiving recognition from people. Or I still think my purpose has a lot to do with how much I could earn or where I could get in my job or how well my kids get raised and how well they perform in society or what my grades are or what I did on the sports team. or There's a lot of things that we, we fill in the blank with there. But eternal life is I'm walking with God now and I'm saying, God, how can I live for your purposes today? How are you going to lead me to live different today? It's not something that we wait for in life after death. You you, you live for God and enjoy relationship with him today and focus on his purposes in the here and now. And he says if you do that, eternal life is yours. If you believe everyone who believes may have. You have eternal life now. You have it now. You are in participation with the divine today. Today. He's walking with you. He's talking to you. He's, he's transforming your heart. He's cleansing your conscience. He's He's letting you know that you're safe. He's letting you know that that you're cared for. He's letting you know that he loves you. Sometimes he's grabbing you by the ear and saying, come this way. But he's with you. And he's with you to the greatest degree. God God has revealed himself, and to the greatest degree, the verse that... Many of us know, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes, a present active verb, in him will not perish, which means to live in ruins. And, and you, you could live in ruins. You could, instead of eternal life, you could live in ruins. It's up to you. He's, he's, if you want to live in ruins and for all the wrong purposes, you can. I don't know why you would. Will not perish, but have, present active verb, eternal life. So he's revealed himself to the, in the greatest degree. And so let me show you. He's the, the, to the greatest being. God has loved you. He's done so to, to the greatest degree. He's so loved you. Uh, with, the, with the greatest affection, he's loved you. And the, the object of his affection is, is the whole world. That includes you. He has given us the greatest act of love that he gave us, his son. He has given us his greatest treasure, his one and only son, so that we could be a part of the the greatest family, whosoever could be a part of this family. He's given us the, the greatest trust to believe. He's become the greatest object of faith. He's provided the greatest deliverance that we will not perish. He's given us the greatest assurance and promise that we would have in the present tense, the greatest blessing, eternal life, which is a sharing of the divine life upon the moment of belief. And that's what makes this verse so amazing. It's why it's so memorable, so important. It's because he reveals all of these greatest things that that you're stressed, you're worried, you don't know what's gonna happen in your life Look, listen, you have the greatest blessing right now, rest in his promise and have assurance of your faith. He's got you, he cares about you, he knows about your health, he knows about what's going on with your kids, he knows about the money, he knows about uh, your, your, your struggle with addiction, he knows about it and he, and he cares about you and he's giving you eternal life and he's saying, we will you, will you, will you live in this deliverance. Don't live in ruins, but live in the deliverance. Let him be the greatest object of faith. He already is, but let him be that for you. And so God has revealed himself to the greatest degree. And he's given away his greatest treasure for you, for me, his one and only son. He spent his life on our redemption, He rose from the dead to give us regeneration, a new life. He's revealed himself in the greatest degree, and he's done so with mercy, grace, and love. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so for Nicodemus, he would have had to rethink the role of the Messiah. Uh, The Jewish people at that point in time, and and with rare, and I'm not aware of an exception, the Jewish people were looking to a warrior king like David to come back. Um, Their idea was that salvation and condemnation would happen at the same time, that the Messiah would return, that he would crush the Gentile nations that were oppressing them and had been for quite some time, uh, and that he would restore the nation of Israel and the kingdom of God back to Jerusalem, and that he would do it with, with a sword. Now, Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees, they had witnessed numerous failed attempts by self-proclaimed messiahs, and they were skeptical of anyone making such a claim. Um, In fact, there was a guy right around Jesus' birth. His name was Bar Kokhba, and he led a rebellion, and that rebellion was crushed, and there would have been thousands of Jewish zealots, rebels, that were crucified in and around Jerusalem. And for the religious leaders of the time, that would have been very very difficult for them because they had a decent relationship with Rome Rome was letting them hold a position of power and they were letting them keep the law and they were letting them practice their religion and they were letting them um, with the exception of capital punishment um, be judges. And so every time one of these rebellion comes up, they're, one, they're worried that they're going to lose their power. In fact, that's what they say upon Jesus' triumphal entry. We better do something. The whole world's going after him. Here comes another rebellion. We're going to lose our power and our position. Wouldn't it be better if one man died for the whole nation than a rebellion went off and we all lost our place? That was what they were worried about. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that he shouldn't be looking for a a warrior king, but the suffering servant, because that's what Christ came to do, be a suffering servant like Joseph, like the one explained in Isaiah. The failed attempts to overthrow Rome and the occupiers before through military action was not what Jesus was up to. He and then his followers would overthrow the corrupt spirit of Babylon. We talked about this Recently, The corrupt spirit of Babylon is a world system that is against God's kingdom, against his truth, against his people, against his leaders. They would overthrow the corrupt spirit of Babylon, not with a sword, but with a cross and an empty grave, with light and life. And if you know the story of the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. Um, they, they, they changed the world by following Jesus they changed the world with, with, the, with the cross and the empty grave. They, they didn't pick up a sword. They didn't, they didn't fight with military. But instead, they brought the kingdom of God to earth by sharing the message that freed people from the spirit of Babylon. And in the process, that changed governments. If you know the story of the church, some of it good, some of it bad. But if you think that the government that you have today is worse than the government that existed across the world in Jesus' time, you, you clearly haven't read a history book. The odds of you and I living the way that we do at that point in time, they frankly didn't exist. Um, the prosperity and the freedom, the, the right morals the right ethics, all of those things came through the spread of the gospel into governments. Now, the sad thing we see in our day is that our governments are moving away from that. Not everybody, but to a large degree, our governments are moving away from those principles. And they call it progressive. But we're not here for that. But that's how the spirit of Babylon was overcome in their age. It's how it's overcome in our age. It's overcome through the story of the cross and the empty grave with light and life. And then he tells us, but it's, it's your choice. You can believe what you want to believe, and ultimately you're going to believe who you love. It says anyone who believes in him, talking about Jesus as the, himself as the Messiah, is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. It's quite the statement. It means that each and every one of us entered this world condemned, and that it's not until belief takes place that we're saved. The, the one and only Son of God He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. This is an interesting one. Love the darkness. The Greek word there is agape. They wholeheartedly, unconditionally gave themselves over to darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. That would have been very true for Nicodemus and the religious leaders of the time. They would not have wanted their vices to be exposed. And that's what Jesus did over and over again in public. That's why they hated him. He was exposing their leveraging of the word of God to take advantage of widows. He was exposing the way that they used power to gain more and to be rich, and how they used their riches for their own advancement, not for the, not for the weak, for the needy. They hated him for it. Now we live in a day where it seems like people are exposing their darkness I mean, just jump on social media for a minute. And the further a society gets from God, the more that that will take place. He says, but anyone who lives by truth comes to the light. Lord, expose my darkness. Lord, expose my sin. Lord, I want to be, you already know it, make it transparent to me the ways that I need to be transformed. Make it transparent to me how I'm living in ruin and lead me to life so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God's, by God. And so we hear belief, not works, brings salvation and new life. And the other thing is that deeds prove the depravity of humanity, not our worth. Our deeds reveal that what we believe and our beliefs reveal who we love. The call is to love God as he has loved you first and given his one and only son for your freedom and new life. And those who then give themselves over to this that that trust God, that humble themselves before him, that say, you have loved me, I'm going to love you in return, uh, they then live in light and light and uh, they, they, they receive divine regeneration and then their works are empowered by the Holy Spirit, not their own abilities. And Jesus said in John 15 that if you don't abide in him, You can't do anything. If you abide in him, there'll be much fruit. And so we go through this and we see that we can't see or perceive, yet God enlightens and quickens. We fail to recognize, but God has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself to the greatest degree with mercy, grace, and love. And then he puts this choice in front of us. And and ultimately the choice is who do you love? Because who you love will transform your beliefs and what you believe will transform your behaviors. And so if you love yourself, you'll live in a way that exalts yourself. You'll believe that that's how you should live. If you love the world, you'll believe that you need the things of this world and your deeds will follow. If you love God, You'll believe in his one and only son. And your works, the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you process your emotions, and the way that you choose, it will change. And that's regeneration, that's new life, that's walking with God. And so new life belongs to those who believe in Jesus. Do you have new life? Do you love Jesus? Is there some other love? Is there some other love? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shared your truth with us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to love you. That in an act of gratitude, reciprocating the love that you have given to us, we would put you first in our lives. We thank you that you've given us new life, that I'm not who I used to be, that I'm a new creation. I pray that it's the statement of every heart this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We believe you, and we long to live different because of you. We thank you for this time where we can take communion and remember your death on the cross, your body broken and your blood shed, so that we can have forgiveness of sins. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.